It was reported to David, look, the Philistines are pending against Keilah and raiding with threshing floors. So David inquired of the Lord, should I launch an attack against these Philistines? The Lord answered David, launch an attack against the Philistines and rescue Keilah. But David's men said to him, look, we're afraid here in Judah. How much more if we go to Keilah against the Philistine forces? Once again, David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered him, Go at once to Keilah, for I will hand the Philistines over to you. Then David and his men went to Keilah and fought against the Philistines, drove their livestock away, and inflicted heavy losses on them. So David rescued the inhabitants of Keilah. Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Keilah, and he brought an ephod with him. When it was reported to Saul that David had gone to Keilah, he said, God has handed him over to me, for he has trapped himself by entering a town with barred gates. Then Saul summoned all the troops to go to war at Keilah and besiege David and his men. When David learned that Saul was plotting evil against him, he said to the priest Abathar, Bring the ephod. Then David said, Lord God of Israel, your servant has reliable information that Saul intends to come to Keilah and destroy the town because of me. Will the citizens of Keilah hand me over to them? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? Lord God of Israel, please tell your servant. The Lord answered, He will come down. Then David asked, Will the citizens of Keilah hand me and my men over to Saul? They will, the Lord responded. So David and his men, numbering about 600, left Keilah at once and moved from place to place. When it was reported to Saul that David had escaped from Keilah, he called off the expedition. David then stayed in the wilderness strongholds and in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. Saul searched for him every day, but God did not hand David over to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
So Edmund was kind of like a second hangout spot for me where we would come and hang out. We'd go down by the waterfront by the uh, by the ferry. We'd get top of Dimitris. I'm not sure if Dimitris is still good, but Manny was good then. And uh, yeah, it's a blessing to be here in Edmonds. I love the Hallows Church. I love Andrew and his influence and his leadership that he's had in the forming of our church. And it's a blessing for me to get to lead us through the study of the scriptures together. So if you have your Bible, uh, please take a hold of it and open with me if you have not already to 1 Samuel chapter 23. This morning we're going to be looking at those first 14 verses of chapter 23. And to provide a brief context of where chapter 23 fits into the context of 1 Samuel, I, uh, I'd like to tell you that at this point David has been on the run from a guy named King Saul. And David is someone who is kind of trending upward. So he has won the affections of the people. He has been blessed, anointed by Samuel to be the next king. He has been granted great military success the praise of the people. He has defeated the Philistine giant and champion, the guy named Goliath. Right? Things are looking good for, for David. But things are not looking so good for Saul. He's kind of trending downward. And his kind of trends are I'm just preaching with a handle on my gear so I can't use two hands. But they're, they're kind of crossing at this intersection point where David's going upward and Saul is, is coming downward. And Saul is someone who has now been driven by a kind of anger and jealousy at David. He's hunted David searched throughout the land for David, wanting to kill David. He's been consumed by this jealousy and envy for David. And this jealousy, this envy, has caused him to create great evil and horrendous acts against his own people. So, for example, just a chapter earlier, in chapter 22, Saul learns through a man named Goeth that the people of Nob, that one particular priest in the city of Nob, a guy named Ahimelech, has assisted David has provided David with food and a sword. So King Saul assumes and accuses Ahimelech the priest of conspiring with David against Saul. He's so motivated and fueled by this jealousy and, and envy towards David that he doesn't see things clearly, even though David has been a faithful, loyal subject to Saul, never sought Saul any harm. This is how he's seeing reality. And in Saul's words, he tells Ahimelech, you gave him bread, and referring to David, and a sword, and inquired of God for him, so he could raise up against me and wait in ambush, as is the case today. This is what Saul is thinking about what happened with Ahimelech and his city that, that aided David at Nob. So Saul orders that Ahimelech and his whole family be executed and killed. Not only the priest, but in chapter 22, verse 19, it's reported, he also struck down Nob. The city of priests with the sword, both men and women, infants and nursing babies, oxen, donkeys, and sheep. Saul slaughters and kills this whole town of God. And the only one who escapes is a, is a relative of Malach, a man named Abiathar, who flees to David and tells him what's happening. And this is Saul. It doesn't seem to be in the, in the best state in regards to emotional or mental driven by rage and jealousy and envy towards David, hunting him to kill him. And anyone who is considered to help David is viewed as a threat. And that's what we pick up in chapter 23. We're told it's reported to David, verse 1. Look, the Philistines are fighting against the island and raiding the threshing floors. And the Jewish rabbi, Shemuel Goldman, noted on this verse that the appeal to David, instead of Saul at this point, reveals that David is the true champion of the David is the one who the people look to to save 
them. So while Israel is being attacked, David is the one who seeks to rescue his people. Hiadah is a city that's close to the land of the Philistines. The Philistines are a people who the Israelites have had a long history of conflict with, long-standing enemies of the people of God. And since Hiadah is so close, it's about 11 miles southeast, it would be an easy target for Philistine raiding parties. Robbing the flesh-crushing floor would mean, in a sense, that the Philistines would wait until the Israelites had done all the work. They had harvested and threshed their grain, and once it was on the threshing floor, they would swoop in and take the spoils after the Israelites had done all the work. Think about it in a similar context, in our local context, and you can think about it like this. So in our neck of the woods down south of Seattle, in Des Moines, there's been a new, uh, in the last couple of years, a new Dick's Hamburgers that's been put in. It's right across from Highline College uh, in the city of Des Moines, great location. I love going there, it's one of my daughter's favorite restaurants. But imagine, let's say you decided that you wanted a nice, juicy deluxe with fries and a strawberry shake. You're not into beef or plant-based, you're like a nice, juicy mushroom lettuce wrap. Something that's very enticing. Let's say you decided that you wanted to wait in line, and each step as you're in line at Dick's is the anticipation of this burger is building. Your, your appetite is being prepared. You place your order and you pay for your meal with the money that you've worked hard for. As you're waiting and just as you're grabbing that bag of piping hot goodness, in come these raiders from a neighboring town 11 miles away, these enemies from the city of Brenton. And here come these Brentontonians, and they're coming in at a raiding party and they take your bag of, of dish in the deluxe and the fries and the strawberry belching. The point is that no one likes hitting their food plunder, right? This is reported today that hey, the, the Philistines are robbing us of our food at the threshing floor. David moves to do something about it. It's reported the first thing that David does in response to hearing about this is he prays. He asks the Lord, he says, Should I launch an attack against these Philistines? God answers, Yes, launch an attack. Rescue the other. Imagine David at this point is talking to his troops and he's saying, All right, guys, let's pack up, let's head out. Going to Kiyan. Let's rescue the city. The men are afraid, and they say this Look, we're afraid here in Judah. How much more so if we go to Kiyan against the Philistine forces? And you can see where they're coming from here, right? They have been hunted as a fugitive in their own homeland. And what, what David's proposing here is now you're making enemies with the enemy of their enemy. Which is not the kind of logic that means the enemy of my enemy is my friend. This is the kind of logic that means I'm going to have two enemies. I'm going to have an enemy from my own king and the own, my own homeland from Saul, and now I'm going to have the Philistines out. This doesn't make sense to me. We're afraid. In response to their fear, their anxiety, their worry, they, David inquires of God. Notice this time what God says in verse 4. Go at once to Kiyah, for I will hand the Philistines over to more explicit promise of what God's going to do. I will do this. He will work. I will move to ensure victory. We know and we believe that if God says it, it will come into fruition. David goes to Kiala, he fights against the Philistines, he inflicts heavy loss upon them, he drives away their livestock. This detail probably included because it was the livestock by which the Philistines would load up their grain to kind of get away. They robbed the island back to their land. So David rescued the people of the island. 
King Saul hears about this. He hears that David is in Keilah, and he doesn't go. Notice what he doesn't do. I'm going to go help David fight against the Philistines. The Philistines are attacking my people and my land. No, he says, I'm going to go attack David. God, he assumes that God has given David into his hand. He thinks that because David is now in a city with, with bars, that he has trapped himself in. 1 Samuel 23, 7 says, When it was reported to Saul that David had gone to Keilah, he said, God has handed him over to me, for he has trapped himself by entering a town with barred gates. And notice what Saul doesn't do. He doesn't pray. He assumes he knows what God's will is. And he assumes based on the circumstances. And if we don't inquire of the Lord, if we don't seek out God, if we don't seek his will, if we don't follow what he has revealed to us in his word, how do we know what God's will is? Often, like Saul, I think we can do what he does. We, we determine, we think we know, we assume we know God's will based on our circumstances. So say you have a friend named Dave. Dave is thinking about leaving Seattle. He's contemplating moving out of the city, moving out of the Pacific Northwest. And Dave is sitting in a coffee shop. And as Dave is sitting in this coffee shop, he's looking out and he's seeing the skies, and there's not a cloud in the sky. It's wide open. It's wide open spaces. And as he thinks about that phrase, all of a sudden, the melody of the tune comes to his mind. Wide open spaces by the Dixie Chicks. And he's singing this melody in his head. Whoa, I don't want to sing it. <laughs> but then he starts to think, isn't didn't the Dixie Chicks originate in Texas? And as soon as he's thinking that, he has a thought of a car that drives by him. Guess what the plates are? The plates are Texas plates. And he thinks, this is it. God wants me to move to Texas. This is, I think, what Saul is doing in this moment. He is assuming he knows what God's will is by simply looking at his circumstances. He's not inquiring of the Lord. He's not seeking the wisdom of the Lord, and he's making this assumption. And we can't often make uh, decisions or assumptions based on God's will because oftentimes we don't realize what's really going on in our heart. And there's an English reformer, a guy by the name of Thomas Cranmer, who says this quote. He says, what the heart wants, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. It says, what the heart wants, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. And what Saul doesn't realize what is happening is that he wants to hurt David. He wants to kill David. So what he's really doing is he's using this circumstance that's presented itself as the justification that this is what God really wants. But he's not seeking the will of the Lord. In reality, what he's doing, he's seeking to kill an individual who has been anointed by God to be the next king. Assuming this is what God wants. And a subtle detail the narrator gives us about accuses into this reality, I think, is found in verse 7. When, when Saul says, God has handed him over. For he has trapped himself by entering a town with barred gates. And this is contrasting against the word that David uses in his prayers, or the word that the narrator uses to describe David and prays to God. This word that the narrator uses and David uses is this word, the Lord. You see that in your Bible, it's all caps, the Lord. An indication of, of the covenant name of God, Yahweh, which is different than the word that, that Saul uses, which would just be Elohim. And this seems to be a subtle technique, a subtle way that the narrator is showing us who is more in line, who is more in tune with the will of the heart of God. It's not Saul, it's David. Saul sees a town with gates and walls, and he sees that this is a town, this technique is to keep enemies out, but it is also a way to keep people in. So he goes to attack. The city. David hears about this, and, and again, 
doesn't make assumptions, he inquires of the Lord. Will Saul come down? Will the people hand me over to Saul? The Lord responds, yes. So he escapes. He hangs out in the wilderness where we're told Saul searched for him every day, but God did not hand him over to him. God is the one who is sovereignly working and caring for it, providing for David. So as we consider what we might learn from this story, I want to present to you a contrast that I see in the story of the two main characters in David and Saul. I think it's helpful for us to highlight these two characters in the story. Let's consider David. What is the narrator highlighting us to, to us about David? In the story, David is, is described as inquiring of the Lord four times. See this in verse 2, verse 4, verse 10, and verse 12. And each time that David inquires, the Lord responds. And each time the Lord responds, David responds in faith and obedience to God's reply. David demonstrates a kind of humility and a dependence upon God. Even in the midst of fear and anxiety, even as his men respond in fear, David inquires of the Lord. David serves to us an example of how we can respond with, in prayer to fear and anxiety and worry. The Apostle Paul writes this in his letter to the Philippians, Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. Do not worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Even as David's men respond in this kind of fear, God is gracious enough to reply to David a second time. I think this part of the story is significant because God nor David respond to his men like this. Stop it! Why are you afraid? Cut it out. Don't do that. Don't be afraid. He prays. That's significant for us because I think what we need when we are gripped by the Lord our anxiety or worry is not chastisement, it's not criticism, it's prayer. It's to be comforted and reminded of God's presence through prayer, his plan, and his victory. You guys familiar with a guy named David Hallison? Very influential figure in the biblical counseling world, have been very much served and equipped by his writings and his books. Uh, but one of the many books he wrote on him, he wrote a book on worry, and he says, he says this about worry. He states, warriors act as if they can, oh, excuse me, warriors act as if they might be able to control the uncontrollable. Central to worry is the illusion that we can control things. The illusion of control lurks inside your anxiety. Anxiety and control are two sides of one point. When we can't control something, we worry about it. How do you respond in fear? How do you respond when faced with anxiety or worry? One of the most helpful verses for me in a time of great anxiety and fear through the pandemic has been 1 Peter chapter 5. I've come back to this verse again and again uh, throughout the pandemic, throughout great change in our church, throughout great uncertainty about the future, throughout great division amongst political and different ideas and thoughts and convictions. Peter writes this, he says, Humble yourself therefore by the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time. He says, cast all your cares upon him, because he cares about you. Some translations use the word, cast all your anxieties upon him, because he cares about you. This has been a common prayer for me. Father, I am anxious. 
I'm not trusting in your control or that you are good at wise. I feel as if things are falling apart. Will you provide for me? Will you care for me? Do you care at all? Will you provide for my family? These are the questions and the anxieties that I have. Yet, by God's grace, as I trust in these promises, I'm reminded that, yes, God cares for me. And I confess that. I believe, Father, that you care about me. Help my unbelief. Help me to live in the sweetness and freedom of knowing that you are providentially working and sustaining me. Response to fear and anxiety, what do you do? Let me encourage you to follow the example that we see David in the story. Face with fear, with face with anxiety, with faith with uncertainty, praise. The first example we see of David is acquiring Second example that's contrasted to that is, is Saul. Saul is described as plotting evil against David. Saul, in contrast to David, doesn't seek the Lord, but assumes that God has handed David over to him. He doesn't pray. He summons his troops to receive David and his men. So on the one hand, you have this character who is marked by humility and kind of seeking the Lord, called out multiple times to God for help and for direction. On the other hand, you have this character who doesn't, who assumes, who actually is trying to hurt and attack the one who God has anointed and chosen to be the next king. Saul searched for David every day, and it was God who was working, God who was protecting, God who was caring, God who was hiding David. Sing the song, unless the Lord does raise the house, in vain is still described. So what Saul was doing, he was working against God. His efforts were in vain. God's will was not for Saul to harm or kill David, but to protect him. So we look at these two characters, we see the difference that we see in Saul and David. I think as we can consider the story, we can learn that there is a a clear exhortation, a clear example presented to us of what God's people are to be marked by, of what God's people are to do. It seems to me from this story that we see the importance of prayer. We see the importance of inquiring of the Lord. The reality that before we act, before we make decisions, we are to submit ourselves to God through prayer, through the counsel of His scriptures, through seeking other godly counsel in our life. We are to seek discernment from the Father in prayer, we are to ask for wisdom in prayer to ask for guidance from God's word. And while I think that's a good and great exhortation, we can see the contrast of David and Saul as an encouragement and an exhortation for us, I think there's a way we can analyze the story that gets more at our hearts, or we can analyze the story that, that gets more to humble us, more at motivating us to be a humble people, motivates us to be a people who seek the Lord, that don't make assumptions and don't respond disobedience for everyone. In other words, what I'm saying is, I don't think it's completely the, the wise or the, the gospel, keeping the gospel at the center of the focus, to simply say this. God wants his people to inquire him. People of God are to be people who seek the Lord. So don't be like Saul, be more like him. I think there's something about the gospel that we're missing if we say this kind of exhortation again, or we read our scriptures in this kind of way. When Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares about you, that's a good and beautiful promise. But there's a connection to the prayer in the previous verse. When he writes, humble yourself. Humble yourself. Now I'm convinced that one of the main reasons that we don't inquire of the Lord, we don't pray. Why it's helpful to get at the reasons why we don't inquire of the Lord and 
not just simply at the behavior level of be more like David, but looking at our own hearts is, I think one of the main reasons I don't pray, and I've seen the lives of other believers is, we are not humble. We're proud. We don't seek his counsel, we don't seek his wisdom, we don't press into the scriptures because we're proud. We don't humble ourselves. Why is it that we can read so many books on prayer, we can hear so many sermons, we can know growing up in the church that prayer is important, yet we don't do it? Because we're proud. We live on assumption. We don't live in a kind of humble dependency, a kind of confession of our great need for guidance, our great need for comfort, our great need for assurance. Therefore, let's not simply look at the story and see a principle that God's people are to inquire. Let's be honest with ourselves and read the story in such a way that we are, that our hearts are captured by the gospel in response to Jesus, in response to his life, in response to his rescue, we are empowered to pray. Here's how I think we can read the story in this way. We don't identify with David. Don't read the scriptures or the Bible in such a way where we all identify ourselves with the hero. This can be hard for us because we can so naturally do this. I see this in my own life as I read the scriptures. I see this in my daughters as they watch a movie. They're captured by a story and they immediately identify themselves with the hero. They want to be like the hero. They want to be like Elsa and on. They don't want to be like Philip. This was like in my life. Growing up, I was captured by the stories in the Chronicles of Narnia. I was captured by the stories of Lord of the Rings. And what I did not do as a kid was pretend to be Saruman. <laughs> I wanted to be Legolas. I wanted to be Aragorn. I wanted to be Gimli. I wanted to be one of the heroes. So let me suggest an effort to humble ourselves that we are not daily in the story. But we are, we are more like people in the time. We are in need of rescue. Raiding parties have come to us wrecking havoc in our lives, causing destruction in our lives, like the people of Kiala in the story. We didn't cry out for help, but we had a rescue. Someone who was directed by God to come to us and to save us in our condition. In this story, we get a pointer, we get a shadow, we get a foretaste of the ultimate rescuer, the ultimate deliverer in King Jesus. King Jesus was sent by the Father, not simply to rescue his people from physical enemies and threats, but our greatest enemies, sin and Satan and death. The enemies who rob the threshing floor of our soul and cause us to hunger and to thirst and never to be satisfied. King Jesus came to rescue and deliver his people, and like David, King Jesus lived in total submission and dependence to God the Father. Yet while David rescued the city by defeating the Philistines, we see in King Jesus that he came to the city to rescue us by being defeated. Jesus sought to rescue his people by being defeated. David came to the city and escaped so that he was not handed over to his enemies while Jesus came into the city to be handed over to his enemies. And he did this willingly. He didn't flee the city that sought to trap them. He pursued and went into the city where he knew he would be handed over to be executed and to be killed. And when you realize, when this truth is driven deeper into your heart like a, like a hammer drives a nail into a two-by-four, as this truth drives deeper into our soul, into our hearts, we realize that, that we are so flawed so sinful and so rebellious that Jesus had to come to die for us, that we had to be rescued. We were in need of rescue. We were in a condition where we needed help outside of ourselves. We needed a deliverer. We needed someone to direct us off of our path that was leading to 
destruction. We need Jesus. As we consider this, we, we humble ourselves. Yet simultaneously, as we think about the truth of the gospel and how Jesus is our rescuer, he came because we were so sinful and flawed. He also came because of his great love and desire and care for us and out of his grace. We realize that Jesus was not willingly handed over out of obligation, but out of love. There was this great joy that was set before him that he came and died, not only because we are so sinful, but because we are so loved. So this not only humbles us, but this it lifts us up in a sense. This causes us to draw closer and closer to God in prayer. When we think about what Jesus has done for us, that he was rescued us, apart from us asking for it, that his coming and his deliverance of us was only by his grace, that he willingly gave himself up for us in his place, that he walked into the trap, that he was trapped so that we might be set free, that he was killed and that we might live. This empowers our this humbles us to pray and draws us closer to Christ in his great love and grace for us. In his book titled Caring for One Another, Ed, Ed Welch writes this about humility. Humility simply acknowledges our many sins and limitations and responds with, I need Jesus, I need other people. It is an attractive package that includes trust in God's control, confidence in the forgiveness the Lord gives, and the openness that comes not from having to be someone, but from resting in Jesus. It turns out that a simple acknowledgement of our neediness and weakness opens the door to the grace of God, where we find confidence, peace, security, wisdom, and strength, and freedom in Him. If we take our focus on the activity or the behavior of, I simply need to pray more, or I need to be more like David and Martin, or I think we will miss this heart. What we need is I need to be humbled by God's grace and his salvation. And this leads me into that activity of prayer. That makes sense? It both continues. He says, one way to put humility to work is this. Ask someone to pray for you. God has established his kingdom on earth in such a way that we must ask for help. We ask the Lord for help and we ask other people. Until we see him face to face, God works through his spirit and his people. How would you characterize or assess your own Humility is seen in our realization of our need, our need for God, our need for others. Humility is seen in prayer and in asking people to pray for you. So I pray, Hallow Church, as we consider this story, that we might be humbled by the gospel, that we might see how 1 Samuel 23 points forward to the great deliverer in Jesus, that we didn't ask for, that we don't deserve, but who came and willingly handed himself over to his enemies on our behalf. And I pray that as we consider this, as we respond in singing to this gospel, that we would be led to be a people who are more and more a people who would inquire of the word in all of life. Amen. Father, I thank you for the great privilege and honor of opening your word and exploring what you are saying to us for people. Lord, we thank you for the book of 1 Samuel and the many ways that it points forward to Jesus in our need for a great and a perfect king. Lord, thank you for the contrast that we see between David and Saul in the story. That we are to be a people, that God's people are those who inquire of the Lord, who have a kind of humility and dependence that 
demonstrates itself in asking for help and seeking guidance. Father, help us to see and to be captured by the grace of God in this story. That we are like the people of Jephthah. That we were in need of rescue, but we have someone greater than King David. We have King Jesus. Jesus, who was handed over on our behalf. Jesus, who was killed. Jesus, who was trapped. That we might be set free. So, Father, I pray that we not forsake or not lose sight of this gospel. That as we observe the Lord's Supper, as we sing songs of the gospel, that this empowers us, that it stirs in us these affections, this thanksgiving, this humility towards Jesus on what he has done. And that it leads us to be a people who know and confess that we are so sinful and so flawed, yet we are so loved. And we are so humble and we are so comforted. So Father, help us to pray to seek you, to cast our anxieties on you, because we believe that you care about us. So be with us. Grant us wisdom to live in light of your word and your teaching. And may you be glorified in our life as we seek to apply the truth of your scriptures and be captured by the beautiful story of your grace. In your name I pray. Amen.